is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello you. Hello. You're looking very smart on the Zoom. Look at the crispness of that white shirt. Are you using starch? How how'd you get that looking so crisp? I felt I had to dress up for you. I felt like standards had slipped. Maybe we should go the full sort of dinner jacket look. What do you think? Yes, like old-fashioned BBC announcers in the 1930s. That's not a bad idea. I'm not into the dressing up, actually. You are somebody who, in your day job, you have to wear a white shirt a lot. You're also somebody who spills a lot of things. How do you reconcile those two parts of your life? Unreconcilable. It's funny you should say that because I was on Newsnight earlier this week and I was at this uh, Trade Union Congress General Council dinner, which is a TUC conference dinner, and I just thought this is going to go disastrously wrong so i did that thing of tucking the tie into my shirt you know to sort of mercifully it didn't happen but but, but the, the sort of disaster didn't strike you want to tuck your napkin in like a baby with a bib it's not a great look is it that i had a friend who used to call up the restaurant to find out what the soup of the day was going to be and then match his jumper so if it was a tomato soup he would wear a red jumper that and so can't on. be true now that i say it, it doesn't sound very plausible well I mean, it's pretty inventive if... Uh... Well, it was a great news night appearance. Well, thank you. One of your best, I thought. Oh, thank you. Which night was it? <laughs> it's quite late, actually. That's the thing that strikes me as I get older. Mm. 10.30 at night is quite late, isn't it? Yeah, you need to try and get on uh, John Craven's news round a bit more often. That's a far more civilised time. Let me just say, he does a great job on news round, doesn't he? Now, I wanted to talk to you about the yeah. sad news, because we're recording this on Friday, the sad news that Clive Sinclair has died at yes. the age of 81. Yes. Because we were both we uh, fans of, of, of Sinclair computers. Did, did you ever have the ZX81? I think maybe I got the ZX81 and then very soon after the Spectrum came out. I thought what could be a fun thing to do is just try and describe the ZX Spectrum. Do you know sometimes when you go to uh, a, a, like a working museum that used to be a mill or something, they've got how actors have recorded audio guides in character so that people of future generations can understand what it was really like for them. I thought just you trying to describe what a ZX Spectrum was and, and how you used it could be fascinating to any young people who listen to this podcast. So so firstly, we just describe the, Z, the ZX Spectrum, the, the physical object. So the Spectrum had these rubber... Dim, dimply rubber keys, yeah? And, and then you'd have to have a wire which then went into the, the back of your, your television. Yeah. It was just a keyboard, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And then you would have to tune in the television like you were trying to find a channel. You'd have to tune it into the ZX Spectrum. You're remembering this much better than I did, actually. I'm now going to look it up. Then you would have another wire which went to a cassette recorder. Yes, I'd remember that. There it is. I can see it here, yeah. Is it bringing back, uh, bringing back all the memories? Are they coming, is it coming flooding back? It youth? really is, actually. Well, then you'd have this cassette of the game. You'd put the cassette in your... you put the tape in your cassette player. Then you'd start this absolutely nightmarish process of trying to load the, the, the game, which, as I remember, it could take so 20 minutes or something. And it'd go... Easily. <laughs> Do you remember? I do, and it could just stop at the last minute and, and completely crash. Some kind of error at the last minute, so yeah. you'd have to reload it. 
and carefully calibrating the volume and on and the tone on your tape machine. I mean, it's just, young people today don't know how lucky they are. Can you imagine what that sounds like? That sounds like when we hear somebody describing how, how they operated a loom. That is what the last two minutes have just sounded like to a young person. The tape loading thing was an absolute nightmare, as I remember it. And you're right, you, you just have to develop techniques for sort of what was the right volume, <laughs> you know... It, it was it was not easy, was it? You had a sort of sense of triumph when it would load. Although oddly enough, when I think back to Manic Minor and stuff, I don't. That's not what I sort of remember. You just remember the high octane gameplay of Manic exactly, Minor. Exactly. Exactly. Was that released to tie in with the Miner's Striker? Was that coincidental? I think it was coincidental, wasn't it? And the follow up game was Jet Set Willy. Yes, it was. He'd somehow got himself a jetpack. What was the machine that came out after the Spectrum? I don't remember there being one that, that followed. I tell spectrum. you why I asked, because I reviewed it for the for LBC. You know, I was on LBC. Yes. I reviewed the new machine on LBC. And I remember like playing the the sound had improved. And I remember like playing what the sound was and da 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 da. I mean I got a free whatever it was, not Spectrum, but the one after. Wow. God knows where it is. Wow. Listen to this. I don't know if this would have been your era. Do you know LBC Radio in the 80s? They used to play the tapes of those computer games on the air. Can you imagine that? Just listen to the radio and it's going for 20 minutes. I don't believe that. I've got a friend who claims they would have like computer whizzes who would write games and then they would play out the sounds of the games loading on the air so that kids could tape them at home and download them. I'm afraid it sounds like your friend who said that they had the same... Tie. Oh no, I've been caught out again. It just doesn't, that sounds very, very hard, hard to believe, really. Well, if anybody has tapes of LBC featuring Ed oh, in the 80s, I know we've asked this before. I think you've had them all destroyed, haven't you? Probably. And if you're my friend, please don't sort of surface them. <laughs> um, yeah, it was hours of fun. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a fitting tribute to, uh, to Clive Sinclair. Maybe we should have a, like a manic minor, like what do you call it? Sort of like a tournament. Yeah, like a showdown. If we ever do a live show again, we could rig up a spectrum to a big screen and get a couple of joysticks. We could do it on Twitch. Yes. Maybe people would like to watch us playing manic minor on Twitch. I think this could be our next big project. Do you think so? This could be the next step in the evolution of reasons to be cheerful. I mean, there are all these incredibly successful sort of YouTube people who do like games on twitch why not us why not us i am sure that the young people using twitch would be thrilled to see a couple of middle-aged men playing a game that they don't even recognize as having graphics in it it's so basic i mean at least we wouldn't have to do the whole (laughs) with the tape with the tape recorder i mean at least i hope not oh that was honestly that used to be maddening Right, well, shall we, shall we get on to what we're talking about this week, which is, um, I guess it's a it's dystopian version of the computer age that we were um, dipping our toe into playing ZX Spectrum. That's how it started. This is where it's gone. This week, we're talking about technology and work, looking at the rise of worker surveillance and management by algorithms. Earlier this month, the state of California passed a bill cracking down on algorithmic management of warehouse workers, which was seen as specifically targeting working conditions at Amazon. We're going to be talking to future of work expert Beth Gatellius about how new technology is making some jobs significantly harder and why the California bill could be a big step forward. Then we're talking to Anna Thomas from the Institute for the Future of Work about the rise of management by algorithms in the UK and what to do about it. 
And finally, Mary Towers from the Trade Union Congress on why the trade union movement is increasingly focused on these issues. And our cheerful person is lead singer of the Charlatans, solo artist in his own right, uh, a great writer. And in fact, we're going to be talking to him about the book of his wildly successful listening parties. It's Tim Burgess. What's your reason to be cheerful? It's my wedding anniversary on uh, Tuesday. Happy anniversary. Eight years. Now, Sarah says, please don't get me a present, but I can't take that at face value, can I? I'm afraid not. So eight years is bronze. So far, the only ideas I've got are some umbre solaire, bronzer, fake tan. A bronze medal. But doesn't that then suggest she was my third choice? <laughs> a bronze dress, a bronze piece of clothing. Is is that the look for autumn, winter 2021? It might be a bit sort of Blake 7 is what I was thinking, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if I think and think of anything bronze, I don't think Ambra Solaire is quite the going to sort of okay. meet. Okay, okay. Meet the bar, I don't think. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, um, I think I was sort of going to go for a bit of telly. Mm. Uh, Vigil. What is Vigil? Vigil is about a mystery that happens on a tried nuclear submarine. Submarine. Oh, I love a submarine drama. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how realistic it is, but it conveys it conveys kind of life on the life on the uh, sharp submarine thriller. The Guardian calls it five stars. I thought you were going to say life on the ocean wave, but it'd be like life beneath the ocean yeah. wave. Oh, well, I love anything with a submarine in it. I love Das Boot. I love Yellow Submarine, so I'm sure I'm going to like this. Lucy Mangan says it's an absolute humdinger of a series. Humdinger is a very Ed word. Yeah, I don't think I've used humdinger enough. I think it deserves more of, a, more of an outing. Get it into the mix. Into the mix. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I feel there's, uh, there's, there's a lot to learn on this subject, and certainly in reading up on it, I've been really surprised. And to bring you up to speed, we're going to speak to Research Director of the Centre for Urban Economic Development at the University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, Beth Gutelius. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me, all. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us. And I guess, um, I mean, the podcast reasons to be cheerful, but here you are to let us know what is going on in, in the uh, dystopian world of work in warehouses these days. So do, do you want to just start by talking to us about the type of technologies that are being used to monitor workers and, and, and beyond that? Okay, first, I want to say, though, that um, I think there's a lot of people who think of warehousing as um, a very advanced, technologically advanced workplace. But technological uptake in this industry has actually been very slow and very uneven. It's a laggard industry in terms of technological adoption. When the media focuses on Amazon because it's really at the kind of the front edge of exploring the kinds of new technologies that, um, that maybe we'll see more so in the future, there are a lot of places where it's still very manual and there's very little technology happening. But let's talk about that front edge a little bit. So I think what we're seeing is um, a set of hardware and a set of software. The software uh, is, is mostly like the kind of thing that you would put in place to manage like all of the different processes that are happening in a warehouse. The hardware, I think, is where we really start to see the ability to monitor workers at a really granular scale. And so that's things like sensors. So let's say um, there are these belts, for example, that a worker would wear that are ostensibly about tracking ergonomic movements and trying to keep um, 
workers' movements within health and safety standards. And even though ostensibly it, it's for health and safety, you can see how, the, how that kind of technology might be used in, in more nefarious ways, um, particularly around being able to track particular movements, where a worker is in a warehouse, how long they're spending in a bathroom and things like that. I think those technologies, they're not, they're not being widely used yet. those sensor technologies. What we're seeing at Amazon, they're really using an old technology, which is like a scanner to track workers' productivity. And so a worker is standing in front of one of these robots, picking something off the shelf, they scan it, and they turn and they say, put it in a box. The thing is, is that there's an algorithm sitting behind that, that is dictating the quotas, um, tracking the movements and the um, how fast workers are moving goods, and then prodding workers to work faster or disciplining them when they fail to meet quotas. I've been thinking about this term like retrogressive innovation, where we're really using very old methods of monitoring workers and really trying to squeeze as much like every last increment of work we can squeeze out of a worker um, instead of what, what I think we dream of as a technologically enabled future, which is one that takes out the more rote and routine and maybe hard on the body tasks and reallocates human labor towards higher level thinking, things that are more complex, things that really only humans can, can still do. How do you get from, you know, this uh, idealized version of we're going to get efficient and productive to, to people feeling like they can't go to the toilet? I mean, it's 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 a it's sort of built in, I think, to the, the question of how companies like Amazon are really trying to to squeeze this productivity out of workers, where even though we have mandated meal and rest breaks um, that because of the productivity targets and because of how high they are, workers are feeling like they have to, they have to trade their own, say, ability to use the restroom um, in order to not be penalized for not meeting a quota. And what does, that, what does being penalized look like? Um, it depends. I think you know, there have been some cases where, where Amazon workers um, have been fired for what they believe is, a, is not reach, meeting their, their quotas. And sometimes it, it's a, a manager coming over, looking at the, at the data dashboard, um, identifying a worker who's not working fast enough, walking over to that worker, having a conversation with them. So there are times when the algorithmic management is pinging a, man, a human manager to then go deal with it. There are other times when it is a direct relationship between the worker and the algorithm itself. And I think those are the most egregious sort of problems that we're seeing. You, you describe. Amazon, in a way, has been a bit of an outlier compared to the rest of the warehousing uh, industry. Does that then have a knock-on effect, though, that to to compete with a a giant like Amazon, that other companies start adopting these methods and, and practices? I have long thought that Amazon's main competitive advantage is really its ability to monitor and surveil its workforce, to prod workers to work faster, and then to be able to discipline them when they fail to meet quotas, all at a, at a scale that we have not seen before. And so when you have that kind of competitive advantage, I think it leads pretty clearly to other companies trying to find ways to catch up um, to figure out the kinds of efficiency hacks that Amazon has um, and so there, I think there are definitely sort of spillover effects of Amazon's particular business strategy into its um, kind of competitive field. Beth, we're talking about these trends, but how much 
and obviously they are related to new technology and so on, but how much are they an intensification of trends that were already in place before? I mean, Frederick Winslow Taylor uh, created Taylorism in the early 1900s. Um, and he, he innovated these time and motion studies where you basically watch a worker very carefully and time each movement, that each like little movement they're making. And you're basically trying to squeeze out any of the inefficiencies that are happening there. And this was a very, this used to be a very manual process. Um, today, with the advent of all these new technologies, we're able to do that at a, um, at a much finer grained, um, at much more detailed level, and again at scale. So it's really an old model uh, with a technology layer on top that produces um, a lot of uh, health and safety risks is what we're really seeing in the data. Now, we've, we've done the sort of bad news, um, potential <laughs> good news. Earlier in September, the California State Senate passed a bill to tackle some of these issues. What, what does that bill involve and how much of the problem do you think it would fix? I think this bill is a really innovative first step. It's unprecedented um, in the United States. And it really tries to get at this problem of, um, of algorithms and quotas being a black box that we can't see into. And so it um, requires employers to be transparent about the quotas that they're setting for workers. So they have to tell a worker when they hire them, this is, this is what you'll be responsible for. Um, and this is what's going to happen if you don't meet your quota. So it really ensures that that first step of transparency around quotas, which doesn't exist right now. Um, it also makes sure that um, that workers, the, the trade-off that we were talking about between taking, say, a meal or a rest or a bathroom break um, and reaching your quota, it ensures that workers can still take all of those mandated breaks regardless of the quota. I think this bill, in the end, it really does cut to the heart of Amazon's um, business model in some ways because in order for Amazon to fulfill the kinds of customer um, the customer expectations that they themselves have set of extremely quick and free um, shipping, they have to have this kind of um, quota system in place. And so I think it's going to change their, uh, their sort of efficiency model. And do you think it's likely to inspire similar laws across the US and around the world? I do. I think we're going to see other states pick this up. Um, I think we'll see other bills like this pass at the state level. You know, I think it's in many ways unfortunate that we that California had to kind of go on its own at the state level um, to pass a bill like this, because this is something that should really be looked at at a federal level. We need a more blanket policy. And talk to us about the role of worker organizing in pushing for the California bill and more broadly, Beth. I mean, this bill was very much, I think, inspired by um, some groups in Southern California, the Warehouse Worker Resource Center, the um, Los Angeles County Federation of, of Labor, um, that has been organizing workers in the warehousing industry for decades and, um, and has really watched Amazon come in over the last 10 years in particular and accelerate the kinds of labor violations and health and safety problems that have existed for a long time in this industry. Um, and so they've been, you know, they have been actively organizing workers in Southern California and, and elsewhere in the United States. I mean, I think this, indu this industry has been really difficult to organize in. It's very fractured. There's a lot of outsourcing. There's a lot of use of temporary workers and there's a lot of turnover. And all of those things together make it really difficult to gain a foothold in workplaces, even where there are egregious labor violations. 
Well, Beth Gutelius, thank you so much for joining us. We'll keep following this story and the and the efforts that have been made to try and uh, to try and bring some order and some standards to this. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, to talk about this whole issue in the UK context, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Anna Thomas, who is co-founder and director of the Institute for the Future of Work. Anna, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So earlier this year, you published a report called The Amazonian Era. Perhaps you can tell us about what you found about the rise of worker surveillance and algorithmic management in in the UK. What we found um, is that the ethos practices and business models of the gig economy are being embedded actually across many essential sectors um, throughout the economy. Uh, without understanding for the profound and often adverse impacts on work and working people's lives. We started looking at logistics, transport, retail, and then extended it to, to manufacturing and some other sectors. And we haven't found a sector that's immune from it yet. This may be an unfair question, but can you paint us a picture of a sort of typical company and what the experience of the worker would be like and how it might differ from a sort of a kind of model of what a good working environment looks like? Um, yeah, I think the examples are, are really important. So a major supermarket, for example, has, has has heat sensors to detect bodies at the tills, which inform queue length reports and which may lead to the disciplining of staff um, if more than one person is in the queue. So Jeez. through COVID, this trend has really accelerated with new sensors introduced even to manage customer levels. Another example is delivery drivers, which have algorithmic systems allocating the number of delivery drops each day. And they're based on really strict compliance to set routes at optimal speeds. And those time delays must be recovered if they're not met initially. And talk to us about your vision of good work and why this algorithmic management threatens that. Algorithmic systems are being used across the country to control fundamental aspects of work and work itself is being redefined in a sense in really narrow terms that can be quantified and measured by an algorithm. So this approach we found is segregating the workforce and intensifying work um, and in particular eroding the value of human skill and judgment and agency um, of the people of the people doing it so in a sense it's taking away or can take away the the very the most human part of work and control of work is part of the problem that the 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 workers rights that we have belong to another era and here we are, it's 2021 and, and government's way behind on this. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, employment rights haven't really kept pace with the challenges presented by this kind of adoption of technology in the workplace. And we've been saying that we do need a, a bill of new digital rights for workers, as well as new corporate uh, duties to, you know, to get people to think about the human impacts, you know, at the earlier stage of the innovation uh, cycle and right the way through its life cycle, not just at the end when it goes really wrong. And, and I was th- thinking as well, you know, software will pop up, somebody can pitch an I- idea to a boss and they can just implement it unchecked. Like it, it would be very difficult, I guess, to come up with a very wide ranging suite of digital rights for workers to protect against this stuff, wouldn't it? I think it would have to be wide ranging, but yeah, it would involve um, policymakers to decide and prioritise what were, you know, what were the biggest gaps um, 
um, and what was you know what was most important we we've suggested that there should be a full right a full explanation um in terms of the purpose of the um you know the algorithmic system who and how is involved and what's going on rather than wisps of of information which you are entitled to currently under the gpdr and data protection rules um we um have um identified the importance of um, creating the, a preemptive corporate duty to undertake um, algorithmic impact assessments and then make proportionate and reasonable adjustment in response to that. And that's proposals in, in the Algorithmic Accountability Act. So does that mean if, if you're a company and you want to introduce algorithmic uh, monitoring technology for your workforce, it, it has to be scrutinised? Somebody else has to check your, check your homework for you first? Yeah, in a sense, yes. Um, and also, you've got to think about the impacts on your work and your workforce at that stage. It's the earliest stage that you can and get those people who you're buying the tools and the equipment from to think about it too, rather than wait till you're further down the line. Um, and we think actually that that's really good for tech innovators um, who need guidance. And they, they frequently say that they're to us and that, yeah, that they are unsure about how what they what they should be thinking about and implementing that for business as well because it would give clarity and of course for workers and through that through improving work society more widely and 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 is there a country that's doing a really good job of this I don't think anyone has got it quite right yet, but there are sort of there there are signs it started. Like the Canadian government actually um, have mandated algorithmic impact assessments for the public sector. Um, we've seen um, some examples of different forms of algorithmic accountability in the Netherlands, France, New Zealand, um, Amsterdam, and New York City as well. Um, it, there there re- there is still scope, we think and hope, um, in terms of reasons to be cheerful for the UK to become a leader in responsible technology but there has to be an appetite to do so i mean clearly anna there's always issues about governments including sort of particular governments recognizing issues of power imbalance in the workplace and the impacts they have but i wonder how much there's a more general issue which is the whole tech revolution was sort of sold to us well sold by many people who were part of it as sort of you know government hands off and so on and and that somehow governments have been sort of reluctant to intervene and and also governments aren't very quick they're sort of quite they're not very nimble generally and that there's a sort of mystification going on here which makes action significantly harder i just wonder how much you think that's an issue tech has been sold to us as the answer um and we all in a sense want to believe it and it's become and that sort of um, put about in quite an evangelical way and that combined with the way in which we're bamboozled by the language of statistics um, and technology and our lack of real understanding um, about how it's playing out except uh, for that uh, put out by extremely powerful PR machines you know combined with the traditional problems of government and regulation to make it a, a particularly tricky area to regulate. And and on this podcast, uh, a new day is dawning. We have a, a plan for a utopia uh, with Ed installed as a puppet prime minister and me as some kind of benign dictator. You, of course, uh, will be uh, uh, put in charge of uh, uh, sorting all this out and making sure that the Jeffocracy is a world leader of this. What is the first thing you do on day one? First thing I do is the uh, initiate the Accountability for Algorithms Act um, in the public interest, a public interest legislation, a piece of legislation, or consult on it. Secondly, introduce an employment bill with a dedicated schedule of day one digital rights 
And thirdly, um, I would encourage the Cabinet Office to initiate a collaborative cross-government strategy work 5.0, sort of underpinned by the principles of good work and human-centred design and use of technology. That's a busy day one, Anna. Uh, Anna Thomas, co-founder and director of the Institute for the Future of Work. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Finally, to look at this from a union perspective, we're joined by Employment Rights Policy Officer at the Trade Union Congress, Mary Towers. Hello. Hello there. I've been mildly horrified by some of the things we've learned in this episode, but, uh, you know, as ever, inspired by some of the solutions that have been put forward. Um, do, Do you want to just start by talking about why these issues around worker surveillance and algorithmic management are increasingly important for the trade union movement? I think the first thing to say is that unions are all about what happens in the workplace, the employment relationship and workers' rights. And algorithmic management has been described as the new frontier of workers' rights. And so for that very reason, it's an absolutely key union issue. Another um, key reason for this issue being so important to us is the significant implications for workers in all aspects of their working lives. Um, So we carried out some research uh, towards the end of last year. We surveyed workers and trade union reps and we found significant evidence of various really concerning forms of negative um, implications for workers when they're being managed um, by algorithm and recruited um, by AI, by artificial intelligence. And and something else that you know so surprised to read about is is bossware this is when people are remote working it's it's software and tools that um, managers are using to check if somebody's physically in in front of a camera and, and all kinds of stuff can you can you talk to us a little bit about what's going on there There are numerous implications of the use of those types of technologies. Um, You know, one is in terms of work life, um, work and home boundaries and questions around privacy. Um, So there might, for example, be um, use of um, a camera. There may well be, for example, some form of um, keyboard monitoring that's taking place to make assessments in terms of productivity. Um, And what we found is that that type of surveillance has really significant implications for workers in terms of their health and well-being. Um, So it can have very negative implications um, for mental um, well-being due to increased feelings of stress as a result of being constantly scrutinised. And then there can also be um, significant implications in terms of um, work intensification um, and pressure to meet unrealistic targets. Well, it sounds like uh, this calls for a manifesto, and unfortunately, earlier this year, the TUC published an AI manifesto. Um, we did. So, so give, it, give us some of the principles in that. Yeah, so what we did with the manifesto was that um, in the first part of the manifesto, we set out a series of values um, that we encourage employers to adopt when they're considering putting in place new technologies at work. And so the values um, that we distilled, number one, were the importance of worker voice. And so that's both the importance of um, consultation of workers um, before these types of technologies are introduced at work but also in terms of um, the importance of collective bargaining and actively involving unions um, in the process. And then we also um, stressed in terms of our values the importance of health and well-being so that no new technology should have a negative impact on people's physical and mental um, well-being. 
the importance of work, home boundaries and drawing those boundaries clearly. And then transparency and explainability um, in, in terms of people actually knowing when these types of technologies are being used, number one. But also, number two, crucially, really understanding how the technologies are working and then how those technologies are operating specifically in relation to the individual. And then we also highlight a a sort of important concept which relates to the the sort of idea of data justice and data equality, um, where we're saying that workers should have the same sorts of rights over their data and the same kind of rights to benefit from their data as employers do. Um, And we call that the principle of data reciprocity. How much should individual employers when, when they're navigating these issues um i mean should should that be coming from government is it only going to come from government if the trade unions are making a noise about it should be should it be through direct negotiation with individual companies from trade unions how, how do you see it being implemented so we think that there are really really complex problems associated with the use of these technologies and so we're not saying that there is one solution we're saying that there is a package of solutions and a, a core part of that package is the importance of collective bargaining we think unions have got an absolutely critical role to play um, in solving a lot of the worst harms associated with these types of technologies through a process of negotiation um, with employers but that said regulation is also so required. Um, and I think it's quite often overlooked that actually we do have um, some laws in place that are extremely helpful, data protection laws, equality laws, um, and some standard employment right laws relating to um, unfair dismissal, um, contractual entitlements. Those can all work for people to a certain extent. But on top of that, there are some really significant gaps in the law that need to be filled. And so the second part of our manifesto is putting forward a very pragmatic set of proposals for how to fill those gaps in the areas of law that I've mentioned. And those changes could also be backed up with some better guidance um, from some of the regulators. And you you mentioned uh, that workers can be empowered by collecting and combining their own data at work. Can you talk to us about that? I know that your podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful. And I would say that this is, you know, this is an area of real opportunity, a really exciting area um, for trade unions and for workers, the potential to collectivise their own data. There's a lot of potential for unions to play a key role in helping workers to do that and then in developing apps that can uh, whereby, for example, workers could collect data, um, self-tracking data, um, data on working hours, data on commuting time, um, data on how long they've been on their feet during the day, um, how many breaks they've had. And all of that information could then be used um, to inform trade union campaigning um, for better terms and conditions at work. And there's an app called WeClock that fulfills exactly that role. Um, It's a really fantastic innovation. Um, We've also got other um, unions amongst our affiliates who've been developing um, apps that analyse pay, um, particularly helpful, for example, in the social care sector um, or for freelancers. Um, So it's a way to capture um, pay data, bring people together, bring individual freelancers together capture pay data and then enable them to negotiate um, rates across the sector. The fight of trade unions is obviously a long-standing fight for better working conditions. Um, I guess one theme that's been running through this uh, conversation is the issues are new in terms of new technology, but they're old in the sense of 
these power relationships at the workplace and the whole issue of monitoring? What, what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so in a way, it's old problems being played out in new forms, um, but there are also some really significant differences. So I suppose we could, um, you know, think back to the, the, the sort of industrial labour exploitation of the, the the kind of late 1800s, early 1900s, where um, it was the beginnings really of, of labour operating alongside machines and the implications of that in terms of work intensity, productivity and uh, monitoring of um, performance by um, by managers on a kind of on a large scale. But the really big difference now is the, um, I suppose, in terms of scale. Um, so if you think about um, a lot of these AI powered tools um, and how they're operating, um, they're operating across the board on a kind of potentially global scale where you've got particular applications that are being developed by big tech companies. But not only that, in terms of the scrutiny that they can impose um, on workers, it's scrutiny um, to a, a, an incredibly high degree. Um, I, I think there's also like a, a kind of theme in terms of um, sort of exploitation and de-skilling. You know, that's something that, again, like, was a feature um, of, of, of sort of industrial labour exploitation towards the end of the um, 1800s. And, and again, we're sort of seeing that as a, as a theme um, that, that kind of runs alongside almost as a paradox of the kind of the, the sort of science fiction, oh, AI can do everything and it can do everything better sort of narrative. It, it, it's just really important to highlight that kind of paradox between the glossy, shiny side of the of the new tech and then this, this kind of really disturbing exploitation um, that's taking place behind it. We have a thing on the podcast just to end with, uh, Mary, called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the utopian benign ruler. Uh, he says it's utopian. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, what 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 would you suggest if he put you in charge of dealing with this suite of issues, these really important issues that you're talking about? So the absolute first thing that I would do would be to increase support um, for trade unions. Um, and so that would be a suite of measures that would involve um, giving unions um, the right of access to workplaces so that they can explain to people the importance of trade unions, how trade unions can help them, the benefit of trade union membership. Um, and then a statutory right to consultation um, before the introduction of these new types of technologies, um, making it easier for unions to be recognised um, for bargaining purposes. Um, and also really crucially, actually, is supporting sectoral um, collective bargaining. And unions ca- could potentially you know, negotiate terms in collective agreements that could apply uh, across um, whole sectors if properly supported by governments. And then I would undertake some really, really significant um, kind of futuristic long-term planning um, because there's a whole suite of immediate problems that need to be dealt with quickly. Uh, But also we need to start thinking about, um, you know, we've seen how quickly these technologies develop and how quickly they're being rolled out into the workplace. There'll be changes that we can't even imagine right now that we need to start providing for, thinking about, um, you know, it's not just um, within the employment relationship that changes are needed, but also in terms of you know a lot of thinking about sort of product product management standards um, and thinking ahead to make sure that we've got regulation that can that it, that is flexible enough to fit the incredible shift that these technologies are going to create um, in terms of working lives. 
Well, look, Mary Towers, you've set out a clear um, manifesto, a clear set of responses to these really serious issues. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's been really great to share our ideas with you all. So thank you very much. Really interesting subject. What did you think? It's so interesting. And I know that we're all about optimism here. And I do think there are a lot of good ideas in the solutions. Yeah. Just the you know the genie that's out of the bottle with this stuff and some of the things we heard about i've got a a family member who works in a supermarket and she told me about the you know the heat sensor monitoring q size stuff and i was mildly horrified by that and that's just the tip of the iceberg isn't it but um it does feel a bit like and this comes up every now and again um especially when technology is involved that the the workers rights legislation that we have is rooted in factories from 100 or 150 yeah. years ago and um you know if the trade unions had remained strong maybe some of this stuff would have never happened at every point at which it was about to be implemented there could have been um questions asked but yet here we are but i do think like we've heard a lot on the podcast and there's been a suggestion of it today that even in the this kind of technology world, work, workers are getting together and pushing back against stuff. Yeah, I mean, I must say, I sort of think that your the historical thing is really interesting because if you think about it, factory work led to the rise of the sort of trade unions to organise workers to fight for, for rights, uh, not to be exploited and so on. And, you know then trade unions have declined and become weakened. And now we've got this rise of a new method of control. And, but like the trade unions aren't, well, I mean, say they're not there. It's not, well, they're there because they got the, we heard the ideas. Yeah, but but they're there, but they're not, but lots of these workers aren't organised. And so the power imbalance is like, I was thinking, sitting there thinking, well, apart from the goodness of the worker of the boss that you're working for what's your you know your protection is incredibly weak isn't it yeah um and the role of trade unions and legislation seems to me to be kind of really important i I thought the other thing that was interesting was mary's stuff about workers sort of using the technology to their own advantage if you like you know getting sort of banding together to use the data to make their case i thought that was a sort of more kind of in a way turning it around to be a kind of you know, if you do it in the right way, the technology can help you. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Time for our cheerful person this week. And he's here to talk about his new book, The Listening Party, Tim Burgess. Hello. How are you, Jeff? I am well, and let me tell you something. I knew that you were onto something with the listening parties when even Ed, who 
largely, you, if if pop culture is here and rock and roll is here, Ed is somewhere way over there in the distance. On a different planet. Even Ed sent me an article saying, look at this, isn't it fantastic? So, you know, it's, it's even entered Ed world. I just think it's a lovely thing. It's just such a lovely, I mean, you should talk about it, Tim, but I think it's just such a sort of lovely thing. It was just particularly those early days of lockdown were so sort of grim and I just thought it was amazing. Anyway, how did it, how, where did it, where did it cut? Where did the? We should explain what it is, Jeff. Maybe for some people who don't yeah, know. Yeah. Now, Tim, you, this this was something you'd done before lockdown. This was getting people to press play on an album at a certain time on Twitter, uh, and then people would tweet about it using a hashtag. So that was something you'd done before. But then, what what changed with the pandemic? Well, really, I'd only actually done them for charlatans um, albums before the pandemic and I decided that I wanted to do some friendly again and I announced you know would it be a good thing to do uh, to my Twitter followers and everybody agreed that it would Alex from Franz Ferdinand said I bought that record when I was 17 years old and at that moment I thought well why don't you do one use my platform and um, and we'll sort of like you know we'll we'll spread the word on how great the first Franz Ferdinand album was. And then Bonehead joined in quite quickly, Dave Roundtree, Wendy Smith. And that's kind of, that was pretty much the first week, you know, from March 23rd. Like you said, um, they, people press play at, uh, at that time it was 10 o'clock. Um, and they tweet as we listen to their record and they tell us stuff that we didn't really know or that we might have known or we needed, you know, uh, needed reaffirmed. Um, but we just fell in love, all fell in love with their stories while we listened to their music. But it's amazing in, in so many different ways. Firstly, because you you feel like you're getting uh, musicians talking about music that you really love in, in, in a way that often you, you'll know from doing promo often people don't want to rake over stuff they did 10 or 20 years ago they want to talk about the new thing and with a bit of distance um they often have more interesting things to say about it so you're getting getting that then often you'll get people who are adjacent to it uh maybe a, a producer or somebody who did the artwork all get involved then you've got this other thing a bit like you mentioned with alex from franz ferdinand where you you start figuring out what these albums meant to other musicians so then you've got that layer of it and then there's this whole community of people who join in with it and you see see their memories as well and it seems to be especially with the lockdown um that's that's the thing that really caught a light that it was somewhere for people to be together when they couldn't physically be together yes and also you know like when i asked bonehead you know which records to do or dave browntree which records to do dave said part life is that like, great magic word you know definitely maybe yes you get in this you know it's like it wasn't you know nobody came up with like oh i need to do my new album because it's most important well a couple did but i said you know you're gonna have to wait but um, but uh, you know it was just that was the spirit of it you know to make people happy get people involved in something that they really knew about you have paul mccartney kylie minogue billy bragg yes and so and did you find that people really wanted to do it Yes, uh, uh, you know, at, at the beginning, you know, it was it, there were people that I knew uh, that because that was easy, you know, for me to get in touch. And then I think I said before that it, it was meant to be at ten o'clock uh, every, every night, and I, I didn't know how long the the no one knew how long the, the pandemic was going to last. Maybe three weeks, something like that. The second week, 
um, I had a eight o'clock, nine o'clock, and a ten o'clock. And then we had to do a seven o'clock to fit everybody in. And then we did festivals. So there's like, you know, we'd start at midday and finish at midnight, you know, something like that. For, you know, doing with breeders as the headliners and Midlake involved and John Grant, you know, all part of this imaginary festival that wasn't taking place because of the pandemic. The Beatles stuff is 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 nuts. So I'm this Beatles obsessive, and it seems to me that the listening parties has kind of reunited the Beatles in, in as much you've had both Paul and Ringo on it, and the estates of George Harrison and, and John Lennon have been involved, and and now you in the estate of John Lennon, you you seem to be like that. You've done a done a few things. So how, how did that happen? Well, uh, the Paul McCartney one um, came up because because obviously McCartney three was um, advertised, and I just. Because of the success of the listening party, I felt brave enough to tweet Paul McCartney and said, how about a listening party? Obviously, silence. <laughs> Until six weeks later when I got an emoji of a thumb up. Which is the most Paul McCartney emoji, of course. <laughs> exactly. And it, I thought it's on. And then, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, tons of Zooms later and an assigned, an assigned copy of McCartney 3 later. It, it it happened and and it was brilliant and then I think you know um, the estate of John Lennon you know Yoko and Sean and um, Klaus Borman and John Leckie everyone who was involved in the Plastic Ono band wanted to do uh, the anniversary of that and then and, and then Imagine came a little bit later just last week really and sometimes Twitter to put it mildly is not known for being the nicest place on earth Am I, is it just my impression or does it seem to be incredibly an, an oasis of niceness. It seems to be, um, and I think that you know that the, there's definitely a community. There's podcasts about the listening party by from fans of the listening party, uh, to, uh, the Twitter party revolution, Tim's listening party revolutions, revelations. Sorry, not revolutions. Um, although that would be quite good, revolutions. Um, uh, um, and you know, people seem to just want to go there and engage and 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 be happy about things. You know. It's weird for Ed to understand that you can do a tweet and not have somebody go, fuck off, Beaker. <laughs> Doesn't that happen to everybody? Well, you know, I get a lot of, I, I get a lot of hair uh, uh, tweets, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's all good about the listening party and long may it continue, you know. Have you had a favourite, Tim? I really have. I mean, you know, so many. Um, you know, it, it's it's funny when someone says, "What's your favourite?" and and I come back with like three or four. But um, Dex's Midnight Runners, when uh, Kevin realised that he actually liked his first album that he hadn't liked for forty years, that was pretty good. Also, Spandau Ballet, um, True, uh, a, a band I hadn't really uh, listened to. And heard the singles and all that kind of thing. But the stories behind Gary Kemp's songwriting, it's just like brilliant, you know, really amazing stories. Well, the book is uh, the, the book is beautiful. I'm like looking at a shelf of music books at the moment, and it's exactly the sort of thing I want on that shelf. You know, <laughs> okay. The stories behind the albums. You had so many great people involved. And uh, I'll ju just finish by letting you know that Ed, just before we started recording, said, uh, I never realised Dave Rowntree was in Blur. Oh, because he knows him as a politician, right? Yeah, which is the, the everybody else is that I never realised Dave Rowntree was a Labour councillor. Ed is the only person. Shows what an ignoramus I am. Um, <laughs> I, I was think I was thinking, Jeff, maybe there's a sort of version of Ed's listening party for like old back back 
Labour Party conferences, what do you think? I think, that's, you know, perhaps, perhaps there's a, there is something there. All right, Tim, thank you so much. The book is out now. Thanks so much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. Whoa. I've been sorting out my cupboards in the, in the loft. And, yes, uh, two, you have. Two things. I found the leaflet that you sent out in 2010, I guess, to, to get people to vote for you. Yeah. To be leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. I don't even know why I kept it. I think it was possibly just in a bag of post when I was moving house and I just chucked it in a box and I haven't opened it since. Or maybe you kept it for posterity. The other thing I was going to ask you about is... Would either of your sons be interested in a drum kit? My immediate selfish thought was, what would I feel about it? Isn't that like the teenage thing, is that your kids end up doing drumming and it sort of drives you bananas? It's an electronic drum kit. You can wear headphones. Wow. Well, they might well be. You've got one going spare. Yes, it was uh, an an ill-fated birthday present for Sarah uh, seven years ago, and then I put it in the loft, and it was too painful to do anything with it until now. I mean, funnily enough, though, I... You know, the other thing is talking just makes me think. I, I, I know some people who are really enthusiastic about vegan cheese kits. <laughs> I am not getting rid of that. I fully intend to make that vegan cheese one day. <laughs> talking of, talking of uh, ill-fated birthday presents. <laughs> Shall we thank our guests? Shall we move on? Ah, uh, maybe we should move on. It's all right. It was just sort of it was just irresistible. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was an open goal. It was an open goal. I sort of hit it in the back of the net. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Beth Gutelius, Anna Thomas, and Mary Towers, and thanks to the fantastic Tim Burgess for telling us about his listening parties. Great conversation, I thought. Thanks to Emma Corsham who produces our podcast and gets it sounding nice. Joel Pierce does all the research finds all the people we talk to he makes us sound informed and he is backed up on that by joe kenyon at goldfish gail lofthouse is our announcer ed seed composed our music james deacon made the idents and our artwork was designed by henry cull he's been a humdinger he's been a manic miner and these have been reasons to be cheerful 